So uh, my name is Gad Hillman. I'm one of the uh, organizers or co-organizers of the Caribbean Seminar at the Institute of the Americas, uh, along with uh, Kate Quinn and uh, Steve Cushion. And on this extremely historic day, very historic day, I'm delighted to welcome Randy Brown to our webinar, our seminar, our webinar, as it is now. Uh, as I'm sure as many of you know, Randy is associate professor in the Department of History at Xavier University in Cincinnati. He's the author uh, of a book I know quite well, Surviving Slavery in the British Caribbean. And he, he's published articles in a variety of, of uh, significant journals, one of which I'm glad to say is slavery and abolition. So his presentation today is entitled Slave Drivers, Slavery and Managing Enslaved Laborers on British Caribbean Plantations. So we will follow the usual format and we will have uh, Randy's presentation followed by uh, a Q&A. So I hope you will ask questions in the chat function, which I'm sure you're now quite familiar with. So I will hand it over to Randy and look forward to his presentation. Thanks, Gad, so much for the warm welcome. Um, thanks also to Steve and to Kate and everybody else at UCL and the Institute of the Americas um, for welcoming me. Um, and I wanna thank all of you for joining us uh, today, despite, as Gad pointed out, um, many other distractions or competing events as it were. Um, I do really appreciate all of you joining us here. Um, I'm gonna pull up my screen here um, and hopefully this works and everyone can see what I'd like to share. Um, there we go. Um, so as Gad mentioned, I'm a historian uh, of Atlantic slavery and I focus mostly on the British Caribbean. Um, what I'd like to do with y'all this afternoon is tell you a little bit, a little bit about my current book project, um, which is on slave drivers. Um, drivers, for any of you who may not be familiar with them, were enslaved people, usually men, but with some important exceptions, enslaved women who were appointed by the owners or managers of plantations in the West Indies to supervise other enslaved laborers and maintain discipline. They were critically important figures uh, on virtually every plantation uh, in the Caribbean. Um, and yet historians haven't paid all that much attention to them. There are some important examples to them, a couple articles and book chapters, uh, much older literature uh, from the United States. Um, but in the Caribbean, there's very little work specifically focused on drivers. Um, surprisingly, at least to me, my current book project, um, when it's published, will be the first book on drivers. Um, I've got about 25 minutes or so this afternoon before we dive into the, the question um, and answer and discussion period, which is always my favorite. And, and so with that time, I'd like to do two things. Um, first, I'll spend about 10 minutes or so explaining how I got interested in this project, um, why I think it's important, tell you what my goals are with the project, um, but then for the rest of my time, I wanna focus on one story from one particular plantation, which I think illustrates some of the major challenges that drivers face in their role as labor supervisors, the strategies that they use to try to negotiate or respond to those challenges, and overall the central importance of drivers to the stability of the plantation system, an inherently fragile system, as many of you know. Um, and finally, I'll conclude by sketching out what I see as some of the project's broader implications. Um, let me backtrack just a little bit in terms of telling you how I got interested in this. Um, in my first book, 
Surviving Slavery in the British Caribbean, which Gad mentioned and some of you may be familiar with. I focused on power dynamics in early 19th century Berbice. That's part of what's now Guyana on the northern coast of South America. The central argument I made in that book was that in a world that was saturated with death, enslaved people were focused first and foremost on survival. I also argued that seeing slavery less in terms of a never ending freedom struggle and more in terms of an unrelenting struggle to survive, although of course those two things bleed together, can help us better understand enslaved people's world on its own terms, including their relationships with one another, with their enslavers and with the physical environment where they lived. One of the things that happened as I worked on surviving slavery was that I kept coming across drivers um, virtually everywhere. And I was struck again and again by just how central drivers were to power dynamics of different kinds on Caribbean plantations. Um, indeed, that's part of the reason that I chose this illustration for the cover of the book. Um, this image here in particular uh, was created by anti-slavery activists uh, as part of a broader argument that they made, um, especially in the 18 teens, 20s, and 30s um, about the, the supposed damage that slavery did to enslaved families, um, and particularly enslaved women in their roles as mothers. And so this image really is, um, as anti-slavery activists would see it less about drivers and more about the problem of field labor for enslaved women. But I was particularly interested in the, um, the role of the driver that you see here, who's under intense pressure, which we don't see from enslavers, in this case, to order this woman, presumably back to the field gang there in the background, um, and yet you can tell he's a bit uneasy about having to do this. Um, I'll come back to another image of a driver and reference some things you see here in a minute. As I kept researching and reading um, with the material from Berbice and other slave societies in the British Caribbean, I kept seeing conflicts between enslaved laborers and white plantation authorities that involved drivers at the center in all kinds of different ways. In some ways, that's not surprising. Uh, Caribbean plantations, after all, and this is especially true for those that produce sugar, were some of the most complex businesses of their time. They were agro-industrial labor camps, or to borrow from the anthropologist Sidney Mintz's formulation, factories in the field. Uh, they often had several hundred enslaved laborers, elaborate hierarchies, um, and complex, indeed, transatlantic management structures in many cases. So one way of thinking about these plantations is if you were to do an organizational chart, um, treating it like any other business. Um, and this is something the historian Caitlin Rosenthal actually does in her recent book, Accounting for Slavery. You'd see drivers uh, often very literally physically in the center um, akin to middle managers, or if this were a factory, drivers would be the foremen in the system. And so what this means is that enslaved men who were uh, forced into this role or who wanted this role, and, and that's not necessarily the same thing, of course, um, they had to take on a role that required them to extract labor from their fellow slaves, but they were rewarded by their enslavers for doing so with a variety of important material and social perks or advantages. Um, and those perks helped them survive. And I mean that very literally. Drivers, if you look at the demographic evidence we have, generally lived much longer than other enslaved men, um, often several decades longer than other enslaved men on, um, under the same conditions. Even as enslavers relied on drivers though and rewarded them um, handsomely in some ways uh, for their work, they were constantly worried about drivers' loyalty because after all, that's the paradox of appointing an enslaved person to police other enslaved people. 
Um, enslaved people's, other enslaved people's view of drivers was similarly split. Uh, on the one hand, they saw drivers as oppressors and enforcers of labor discipline and for good reason. But on the other hand, they saw drivers as potential personal allies, as community advocates or ombudsmen, and indeed sometimes as rebel leaders. And it's this ambivalent position of the driver, this in-betweenness when you um, look at the driver's position that to me makes them so interesting. Uh, as I see it, drivers can be an especially powerful lens because of their position to reconsider some of the broader power, power dynamics of Caribbean slavery. So in this current project on drivers I've been working on for several years now, I have two uh, basic goals. Um, first, and at the most basic level, I wanna better understand drivers themselves. Um, how do they find themselves in this role, right? Who was likely to become a driver and how? Um, how, once they were in this role, did they negotiate the competing pressures from above and below? And how did they respond to different crises that inevitably came up in the course of doing their job? Um, the second goal I have is to better understand how the inherently unstable system of labor extraction at the heart of Caribbean slavery functioned on a very ground level and how, long, how it managed to survive for as long as it did. So this is both a social history of drivers on the one hand and on the other, a broader look at power and slavery in the British Caribbean. Um, specifically, this project also speaks to a renewed emphasis many historians have been placing in recent years on foregrounding labor, that is on centering work as the key to understanding enslaved people's daily lives. In some ways, this is an older argument historians have made going back at least to the 1990s. Um, but in recent years, there's been a renewed emphasis among some historians um, including but not limited to the British Caribbean on really foregrounding labor uh, as the kind of most important thing shaping enslaved people's lives and possibilities. In terms of labor, if you spend any time looking at images produced um, from or in the Caribbean, about the Caribbean during the era of slavery, such as this one from 19th century Jamaica, you'll often see drivers playing a prominent role in plantation labor, and that's not surprising. Um, this image here, where you see enslaved men and women cutting sugarcane, you also see the driver um, in the left foreground, who is immediately recognizable, distinguished from the other enslaved men here um, by two things that he carries with him or that he has. First, the rod or the staff that you see there on the left, and then, of course, the long whip that he has over his shoulder. All right, this was often referred to as a badge of authority, in addition to, of course, being a weapon that he used. Even in highly romanticized images like this one, and I wanna point out, this is an image like so many that we have of plantation labor, which obscures the, the violence, the terror, um, and the sheer physical difficulty of the work of cultivating cane. Um, in this case, you still get some sense of the driver's role as a labor supervisor. He's watching over everyone, um, he's making sure people work quickly. He's issuing orders that are, of course, backed up by the threat of physical violence. Um, I want to say just a little bit more about how I designed this project and some decisions I made um, about structuring it. First, in terms of geography, I'm focusing on the British Caribbean, although I make reference to, um, in some cases, the United States, but in more cases, um, non-Anglophone Caribbean slave societies, Saint-Domingue, Cuba, for example. Um, but it's really a project grounded in the British Caribbean. Uh, second, in terms of chronology, I focus on the late 18th and early 19th centuries uh, for two reasons. First, this is the time period when the plantation complex was at its height in most of the British Caribbean, 
And second, this is the period when the, the sources, um, especially for understanding drivers' relationships with other people, are the richest. And I'll, I'll come back to sources in just a moment. Um, I should also say, I do look back at the early origins of drivers um, and the driving system that is using enslaved men rather than white plantation authorities as the ground level um, supervisors, uh, which really takes us back to 17th century Barbados, the rise of sugar and the origin of the gang system or the gang labor system of organizing labor. In terms of evidence or sources, I decided to focus primarily on a massive archive of legal records from the early 19th century um, that were produced by crown officials known as fiscals and protectors of slaves. Uh, these records are held at the British National Archives and they were produced in Guyana, so Berbice, Demerarnas, Equibo, um, in Trinidad and in St. Lucia. Importantly, these are colonies uh, that Britain acquired at the end of the 19th, uh, end of the 18th century. So we don't have these types of records for older West Indian colonies like Barbados uh, or like Jamaica, for example. Um, if you're interested in the reasons why, I can say more about that um, in the Q&A. These records were part of a much broader program the British government had, um, which was really an experiment in what it called amelioration, an attempt to reform West Indian slavery, to begin a transition, a very gradual transition um, to emancipation, in large part through penal reforms and through new forms of surveillance and record keeping. The most important of these records uh, for me, for this book in particular, are hundreds of formal complaints that enslaved people made which include detailed first-person testimony from drivers, from enslaved laborers, men, women, children, African, Creole, all kinds of different um, uh, positions on the plantation, and from white plantation authorities, overseers, managers, owners themselves. And so these records allow for an unusually intimate view of the ground level power dynamics on British Caribbean plantations. And that's especially true when it comes to labor. Um, the story that I wanna share with you in just a minute is actually taken from these records. There's an excerpt of it there on the right of your screen. Um, the final major decision I made in this project um, was how to organize it. And so the manuscript that I've been working on is organized thematically. And so I'll just give you just a kind of brief overview of the structure of the project and what the chapters focus on. Um, each of these chapters focuses on the driver's triangular relationships with enslaved laborers and with white plantation authorities. Um, uh, first chapter focuses on the driving system, its origins, and the pressures drivers were under themselves to extract labor and maintain productivity. Um, second, I focus on drivers' role as key ground-level enforcers of labor discipline and go-betweens or negotiators in labor disputes between enslaved field workers and white plantation authorities. Um, third, I focus on drivers' social relationships within the slave community and especially their intimate and family lives. Uh, fourth, I focus on the consequences drivers faced when they defied or disappointed their enslavers um, and were fired or broken, to use the colloquial term, um, emphasizing the often chaotic consequences that followed such demotions. And finally, I look at drivers' contradictory roles in collective resistance and especially rebellions, where drivers alternately led and opposed um, both minor and some of the most important rebellions in the British Caribbean. To give you a more concrete sense of what this work looks like, I want to turn now to an example that comes from my second chapter, um, and this example comes from a plantation on the Burbese River in 1824 um, in what is now Guyana. And so I've um, included a map here just to 
ground you in place. Um, I notice we have some Guyanese folks in the audience. You may well know exactly where this looks like, um, just a little bit uh, upriver from New Amsterdam. As the coffee berries on Essendon ripened in mid-September of 1824, plans for harvesting them began in earnest. The driver, an African man named Tobias, received orders from the manager one evening about the final preparations that needed to be completed over the next couple of days. Tobias was to supervise the weeding in two of the coffee fields, clearing the coffee trees of vines and pruning the water sprouts in preparation for the pick. And since the work was, at least according to the manager, very light, the fields had recently been weeded, Tobias was instructed to put only three men on a bed instead of four, as was customary. Now this deviation from custom must have made Tobias anxious. He likely anticipated that some people might object as they often did when their hard-won limits that they had set on just how hard they could be forced to work were violated. Um, as historians such as Mary Turner and Amelia Vyoti da Costa have shown, enslaved people um, had a very good sense of customary rights, which they had worked hard to establish and protect um, and objected often very vociferously when anyone encroached on those customary rights. Now, at the same time, Tobias also knew that trying to renegotiate the workload with the manager or objecting to the manager increasing the workload effectively by ordering only three rather than four to work on a bed, um, well, that posed its own risks. And so Tobias had to make a decision and he decided that he was gonna carry out the manager's orders, um, knowing that if he did not, he was likely to face a brutal punishment and perhaps even lose his position. So that night, Tobias made his rounds um, among the people he supervised. This was the customary um, workflow, as it were, on, on plantations. He told everyone what to expect the next morning, and no one objected, at least not to Tobias. So when Tobias went to bed that night, he had no way of knowing that the next morning he would face a major crisis. Shortly after daybreak the next morning, Tobias walked into the first of the two fields, dissected by two, four rows of coffee trees, and blew his horn to call the gang to order. He repeated the previous night's instructions, but immediately an African man named Max objected. Like Tobias, Max was about 40 years old and commanded respect among many people on the estate. Brothers, Max called out, you hear the order that is given. None of us must go three to a bed, he insisted, but four of us. Now, like other drivers, Tobias was not one to shrink from a challenge. You stand before my face, hear me give order, and you change it, he responded. You want the people not to hear me, but to hear you, he demanded. Tobias immediately threatened to report Max to the manager, which was one of the major tools in drivers' disciplinary arsenal when other people challenged their authority or defied their orders. But Max remained defiant and even worse for Tobias, the other people wanted to follow his instructions. They began working four to a bed as Max had told them to do. Tobias decided to wait it out. When the overseers came to the field a short time later, as they typically did to make sure everyone working according to the manager's instructions, Tobias had still not regained control. He told the overseers what had happened with Max earlier that morning, and they told him to march Max to the manager's house at once so that he could be disciplined. Tobias began to do so, but he only made it a few paces. Turning around, he heard footsteps behind him 
and saw that he was being followed by the whole of the gang, men, women, and children. What do you want, he demanded. Their response made it clear that they were determined to stand in solidarity with Max. Before you carry that man home, they said, better for us all to follow you. So what had begun earlier that morning as one man's resistance to a new workload beyond what was customary had become collective defiance of, Tob of the Tobias's authority. Tobias must have been worried that the protest might turn violent. So he decided to release Max and managed to get everyone back to work, although he continued to allow them to work four to a bed rather than three, thus postponing the moment of reckoning until that evening. Around 5 p.m., shortly before sunset, Tobias blew his horn to mark the end of the workday and summoned everyone to bring their customary bundles of grass, which was fodder for the plantation's mules. When everyone assembled a few minutes later, along a brick path at the center of the plantation buildings, the men on one side, the women on the other, everyone carrying their bundle of grass on their head, Tobias and the manager were ready to respond to the day's unrest. They tried to contain the problem by individualizing it. Tobias told the manager that Max was, in his words, the ringleader. The manager ordered Tobias to punish Max by locking him in the plantation hospital's dark hole, a crude wooden cell used on many plantations for solitary confinement. But this strategy didn't work. As soon as Tobias grabbed Max by his lap or loincloth to take him to the hospital, the whole gang, men and women, encircled the drivers and wished to release Max by force. As with their collective action in the field that morning, their defense of Max made clear that the problem was much bigger than an individual ringleader or troublemaker, and that they were united in their challenge to the labor regime and the driver who was trying to enforce it. What followed was a melee. As Max wrestled with the drivers to free himself, another man pulled off his shirt, threw himself in the attitude of boxing, and then seized hold of one of the drivers as they tried to drag Max into the hospital. The rest of the gang joined the struggle, pushing and pulling and using very abusive and threatening language, as Tobias remembered, while they tried to liberate Max from the drivers. At the same time, the enslaved people on Essendon showed remarkable restraint. There were more than 200 of them, and had they wanted to, it could have easily overpowered and even killed the drivers, overseers, and the manager. And yet this protest did not become a full-fledged rebellion, let alone a bloodbath. When the exasperated manager, after finally managing to lock Max up along with another particularly violent man, asked everyone else what they wanted, they were clear. We will all be locked up, they insisted. The manager told them there was no room for all of them. They responded that they would go all of them to town and bring the fiscal tomorrow on the estate. Fiscal was a powerful colonial official responsible for adjudicating enslaved people's grievances and enforcing the law. Some 60 or 70 people did leave Essendon immediately, but rather than going to the fiscal, they went to the plantation's attorney, arriving at his home close to midnight. There they complained that the manager had given them more work than they were accustomed to conveniently skipping over their defiance of the driver's orders and their efforts to prevent Max from being locked in the hospital. Meanwhile, the manager went to a militia captain, captain to report what had happened and ask for help. 
The following day, after a brief investigation of his own, the captain decided that the gang's outrageous and insubordinate behavior, in his words, was serious enough that the fiscal and other colonial officials needed to investigate. The fiscal, unsurprisingly, was determined to punish everyone involved in what he called the disturbance, and he was determined to reinforce the driver's authority. The gang's conduct, he announced after they were all assembled, was highly censurable in two respects. First, they had defied Tobias's orders in the field and therefore failed to perform a certain quantity of labor. And second, they had behaved in a riotous, disorderly, and disobedient manner when Max had been ordered into the hospital. Like Tobias and the manager, the fiscal focused on the leaders of the uprising, beginning with Max. Max had, in his words, assumed to himself the authority of disputing the orders given to the gang and intimated to them through the driver. The fiscal sentenced Max to be worked in chains for a month. Three other men who, along with Max, had been identified as ringleaders, were also given severe punishments. 14 nights in solitary confinement for two of them and two months in chains for the other. Tellingly, the fiscal also recommended that everyone on the estate be punished for having supported Max instead of respecting the authority of the drivers. He told the attorney that he should stop distributing the usual supply of rum, tobacco, and pipes, which served as incentives for everyone who worked and did not resist, until everyone evinced a feeling of regret for their ill conduct. And so ultimately what seemed, at least initially, like a failure of the driving system, an illustration of just how dangerous it was to rely on enslaved people themselves to manage labor and enforce discipline, was actually an indication of just how well this system worked, even when it was under serious threat. This is all the more striking because drivers like Tobias had to do a job that was essentially impossible. Every day they had to walk a knife's edge between the demands of their enslavers, who were constantly trying to push enslaved laborers to the limits of human endurance in the name of maximizing production and profits, versus the limits enslaved people set on just how hard they were physically able or willing to work. Drivers frequently faced outright defiance, including threats to their authority and their physical safety. To keep their position, which offered them the best chance of surviving slavery, they had little choice but to find some means of asserting their authority or forcing other enslaved people to comply with their enslaver's orders. Surprisingly, they managed to succeed more often than not. Perhaps the clearest indication that the driving system generally worked that drivers managed to walk this tightrope is the fact that planners from at least the mid 17th century until the end of slavery nearly two centuries later relied primarily on drivers, even more than the white employees such as overseers that they paid to make sure that their plantations ran smoothly. And planners were surprisingly candid in some cases about just how much they depended on drivers, about how important they were. As one Jamaican planner put it, the head driver was the most important person in the slave population. Another planner admitted that the driver manages everything on the estate. So if a Caribbean plantation, as the Antiguan planter Samuel Martin described it, ought to be considered a well-constructed machine, compounded of various wheels, turning different ways, and yet all contributing to the great end proposed, 
Drivers were the ones tasked with making sure that machine worked. Indeed, they were perhaps its most important component. Paradoxically, the violent system of labor coercion at the heart of Caribbean slavery relied on a subset of enslaved people themselves to extract labor, enforce discipline, and crush resistance. For drivers, taking on this role helped them survive the very system in which they were trapped, but at the cost of helping to perpetuate it. Thank you, I'll stop there. Great, okay, great. Very, very interesting, uh, great presentation. Um, I will uh, await the questions in the chat, but before doing so, um, I mean, the story that you tell about Tobias and Max is of course, extremely interesting. Um, it's all to do with, as you say, the kind of norms that people expected in relation to work, but presumably the story you told has a further background or might have a further background in the sense that this presumably didn't come out of the blue uh, and these work norms had been established, they were being violated, all of that. So the question would be, was there a further background that you didn't have time to explain? Uh, is there something that we need to know about their understanding of those norms? That sort of issue. Yeah. Uh Great question. And the short answer is, um, yes, there must be more background and I don't know what it is. So that's one of the challenges of this types of evidence is that um, we, we get documentation of these customary norms when they're violated, really. Um, and so all we know is that as people insisted several times, this was what they were accustomed to. This is the customary right that they had um, and I'll put this in scare, scare quotes, agreed to with their enslavers, right? So after it's long push and pull, push and pull, um, that at least on this plantation. So what we know more generally from other, other cases uh, and other, other work other historians have done is that enslaved people were always looking not just even to their own plantation, they were looking at all their neighbors. They were looking at what other people on other coffee plantations were doing. And you see this on sugar estates, you see this on cotton estates, whether it's how many pounds of cotton had to be picked, whether how many hogsheads of sugar you could make in a particular uh, season. Um, and so everyone and, and colonial officials are doing the same thing. They're bringing in managers and overseers from other estates and saying, OK, well, what's what's reasonable? What can you expect? The challenge is enslaved people are always trying to say, hey, this is too much. We want to do less. Enslavers are always trying to extract more and more. Right? That's the heart of a kind of capitalism. Right. You never say, oh, well, this is enough production. And so the driver is set up to fail. The driver can kind of never get enough work done. If, if it seems like people are getting their work done uh, under a task system and leaving work early or the gang system and there aren't problems, well, that's an indication as a manager sees it that, oh, people can be pushed harder. Um, so I, I don't have more details about this SMDM example itself, uh, but that's the overall context. Great. So here's a question from Juanita, who says that uh, she assumes the drivers were, all, were always black. Uh, not because the managers were trying to save money, but because it was an effective mode of divide and rule. And that's in the form of a question. Um, yeah, first, hi, Juanita. It's good to see you here. Um, yes, with maybe a few examples where you have uh, mixed race drivers in the British Caribbean, um, when we talk about drivers, all the term is sometimes used to refer to really what are white overseers or sub overseers, the actual ground level people who are there in the field supervising and disciplining other slaves uh, are almost always themselves enslaved and African or African descended. Um, 
Cuba is an exception to that, but, and, and part of the reason for this is not just divide and conquer, it's that the demographics of Caribbean slave societies um, don't really allow for white employees. There's a constant shortage. Planters are always complaining there are deficiency laws to try to get enough white authorities on every plantation. And so you often have a system where you have 300 people living on a plantation, enslaved people on a plantation, one manager, resident manager, one or two overseers, and then several drivers. There just aren't enough um, white employees willing to take this type of work that you can induce to come and live uh, in a place like Guyana. Thanks for the question. Okay, we have quite a few questions. Here's one from Leland. Was there a connection with this defiance, defiance obviously that you describe, and the rebellion in Demerara in the previous year? Kind of interesting too. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Not a direct connection other than um, planters are terrified after the 1823 rebellion about other rebellions. I mean, they're, they're worried about it from before and they're worried about it afterwards, um, but there's no direct link between what's going on on SM and what happened before. Now, of course, you can easily see, I can see how, how what happened on SM could have easily gone in a different direction, could have easily, from the point of view of the manager, spiraled out of control. And so this, is, this prompts the militia commander, this prompts the fiscal and everybody to get involved and to try to crush this before it can spread. Uh, Trevor, uh, whom we all know, says uh, that you cite, as you did, Samuel Martin from the 1750s, although your case study is from the 1820s. So it's a question of change over time. And, and Trevor says, in North America, we know that drivers got promoted to being overseers from the late 18th century onwards. Was that something that happened, he asks, in Burbies in, in the 1820s? With a few exceptions and not in Berbice, I've not seen that. Uh, there's a case in Trinidad where there's a driver who's referred to as the black overseer. Um, and it seems like there's no white resident manager on that estate, at least for several months. But I've not seen that in Berbice or in Demerara. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think you're probably right. It's probably very different in the Caribbean. I think that's right. So Miranda wants, has a few questions here. Could you say, which is, of course, you mentioned this, but could you say more about female drivers? That's one. Coming furthermore, could you say more about the quote unquote dark hole? Uh, does this undermine any argument that the erection of hospitals was a sign of amelioration? Right? You got that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and, and uh, she was interested in the appeal to the estate's attorney. Mm -hmm. What was his response? How common was this tactic of going over the manager's head to higher authority? That was it. Okay, great. Um, excellent questions, all of them. Uh, for female drivers, um, the I can say a couple things about it, but I wanna make sure I'll, I'll point you to a essay that was just published literally a couple of days ago by Diana Payton um, in Past and Present as a Past and Present Supplement on female drivers. It's a case study about the female driver or the driveress, as it was often called. Um, when I say drivers were usually enslaved men, I'm talking about the driver of the first or the second gang, the driver who was often referred to as a head driver. Um, female drivers or driveresses uh, were often elderly enslaved women who supervised the children's gang, the third gang or the grass gang. These are terms that um, more or less get used interchangeably depending upon when and where you're looking. 
Um, and they're supervising primarily children and socializing them into slavery. And so they play a really important role, um, not as the primary enforcers of labor discipline for enslaved adults, uh, but for children. They're often kind of the first formal discipline and punishment um, that uh, enslaved children are getting. Um, and so th that, that's, I'd point you for more details um, to Peyton's recent article on that. Um, for the dark hole and, and being used in plantation hospitals, sure, enslaved people didn't see the plantation hospital as a place of, of health and recuperation. They saw it as a place of punishment. Um, and that's because it was used to lock people in the stocks or in solitary confinement um, in a dark hole without being put in stocks. So that's not a place in my reading that enslaved people ever wanted to spend much time when they were ill. Um, I think, oh, the last question I think was, uh, appeals to attorneys. Yeah, this is a tactic that enslaved people often use. Um, uh, drivers themselves and other enslaved people, they're trying to get um, the next highest authority uh, on the plantation or responsible for the plantation involved as a way of trying to um, renegotiate whatever the particular grievance they have is with the manager. In some cases, they're even more explicit where um, they make threats. I've seen drivers do this where they say, oh, I'm, oh to the manager, they say, I'm going to go tell the attorney about you and get you fired. Um, and you can imagine that happening much more commonly than we actually have that documented uh, in the records. And so everybody's kind of keeping in mind, not just their struggles that are going on on the estate, but they're keeping in mind colonial legal officials, <clears throat> attorney, um, some neighbor they might appeal to, um, and presumably making these kinds of threats and calculations fairly regularly. Okay, good. Tim, are you still there somewhere? If so, you could unmute yourself and ask the question directly. But I think maybe he's gone. So. Oh, he is. There he is. There you are. Hi. Yeah. Hi, I, Tim. Touched, I touched mine in the chat. I thought you were going to just, just ignore me, guys. I would never ignore you, Tim. Well, that's how it is, you know, between us. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, so some of the stuff I'm thinking of, like um, S. Max Edelson's work on South Carolina, um, talks about planters drawing on the agricultural expertise of drivers. People have been on the plantation for 20 and 30 years um, and ask, basically asking their advice as to how to get the most out of a crop or uh, what they should, how they should respond in a particular agricultural situation. So it's not just about labor management, but it's actually about agricultural techniques. So I wonder if there's any evidence of this happening in the Caribbean. Uh, yeah. Um... There's plenty of evidence for that. And you're absolutely right. It, this is not just labor discipline. So you're, you're all getting kind of one slice of this project, right? Um, to be appointed to, a, to this position of a driver, one of the main things, and planners say this again and again and again in their, uh, in their memoirs, their travel narratives, um, um, and especially their advice manuals to other planters. They say, this has to be uh, someone who knows intimately how cultivation works. Um, part of that comes from having spent a couple decades usually in the first gang, but then they're, they're promoting people that they think, and you see this described again and again, and the driver is the most intelligent person on the estate. The driver has to know how this works. And drivers are not the only one who, who get um, distinguished in this way, right? We think of distillers and sugar boilers, right? Who are recognized for the, for the intellectual skill and the managerial skill that they have. So, I mean, part of being a manager and a labor supervisor for the driver is to have this kind of managerial savvy. Um, Rosenthal, who, who does some work on drivers, calls them enslaved managers. I, I find that a, a helpful term in some ways to remind us that um, the drivers are not as kind of older abolitionist literature might have implied and even historiography. They're not like human whipping machines. They're not just beating people to get them to go do work. They've got to have a real sense how this works. 
they do try to leverage that sometimes to renegotiate things. When a planner says, hey, you need to go gin this cotton, in one case where a driver says, no, 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 it's wet, we can't do this right now. If we do it, we're gonna damage the crop. Um, so, and you do have evidence that sometimes managers defer to their drivers. Now, you, it takes a certain amount of tact and skill to go to a manager and object and try to renegotiate that, but that's a, in, in part what's going on. So thanks for pointing that dynamic out. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Great. Here's, here's a question from Helen Kilburn. So uh, she talks about, you mentioned, of course, uh, uh, a reference to non-Anglophone colonies uh, in the Caribbean. So she asks, have you found any substantial differences in driver experience there, the non-Anglophone Caribbean, compared to the British Caribbean? Overall, no. And my impression is that the in terms of the legal system and the colonial um, administration, for example, having legal authorities you could go to or not, absolutely. In terms of kind of negotiating those relationships. But in terms of the day-to-day -day work that a driver had to do, my sense is it matters much less what particular colony, uh, island you may have been on, and what matters more is the crop. So sh the demands of sh a sugar plantation in Jamaica versus Saint-Domingue versus Barbados versus Guyana, um, although it changes over time, becomes more industrial, become, they become larger. But the driver's day-to-day -day job and kind of walking this tightrope and trying to <laughs> um, satisfy people who are enemies, right? Enslaved people and their enslavers is very similar. And so a driver on a coffee estate is gonna look different than sugar, but a coffee estate in one location versus a coffee estate in another, I think is gonna look similar. And so the differences I've seen, I've done some work in Cuban archives and on Cuban drivers. Um, and the dynamics I see there are actually very similar. And I haven't, even within the British Caribbean, noticed huge differences um, over space and time. And so that's, frankly, that's one of the challenges of a project like this is it's not really an argument about um, change over time or how driving <laughs> changes over time. It's a fairly stable system in terms of gang labor and the driving system um, across time and space. Great. So here's from David Alston who says he's been looking at the material in the National Archives of Guyana, which are now been digitized. There's a detailed account, he says, of an attempted uprising in 1814 on the west coast of Berbice. Mm -hmm. About 70 enslaved people were interrogated. Drivers played uh, a prominent role. Is this material you've looked at? The drivers also appear to be playing a role within their quote unquote African nations mm -hmm. as governors, quote unquote governors, or quote unquote kings, which is a quite interesting concept anyway, I think. Yeah, that's the question. Great, yeah, um, David, it's good to see you. And yeah, uh, you, I really, you've done so much work there on um, uh, Guyanese plantations. Uh, I'd love to talk to you more offline in detail about this. The 1814 um, conspiracy or uprising is on my radar, absolutely. Um, I've seen a little bit of work done. I haven't worked with those sources yet myself in detail. I'm uh, at least trying to write this book in order. And so rebellion for better, for worse is several chapters away from me right now. Um, uh, and so I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about those sources, um, especially see what's been digitized. It's been a while since I've been in Georgetown um, and worked in the archives there myself. Um, this connection that you mentioned between African political authority and uh, the driver's position is a really, really fascinating one. It's really hard to study. There is some indication that, um, part of what would qualify someone to be a driver uh, is at the most basic level, having a certain amount of respect from the slave community. So planners couldn't just uh, appoint someone that was their quote unquote favorite, right? They had to appoint someone who had 
a certain amount of respect and leadership. Now, what are the sources for that? One source presumably could be previous political authority uh, in Western Central Africa. Um, David Gagas has done a little bit of work on Saint-Domingue on this front and shown that um, drivers from particular African uh, ethnic groups, um, or I'm sorry, uh, yes, that, that enslaved men from particular African ethnic groups were more likely to become drivers even when that ethnic group didn't predominate in a particular area. And so that, that's telling that raises a lot of questions that are um, frankly really hard to answer. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for both of those comments. And David, I'd, I'd love to talk with you more. Do we, do we know which in, uh, African groups are we talking about here in that case? Oh, you're stumping me off, Gagas. Um, no, don't worry, don't worry. I just, yeah. it, it came off that question. Yeah, I don't want to misspeak. Um, it it yeah, may yeah. be Igbo, but... Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So Juanita has come back and said, is this type of defiance, obviously what you're describing, typical in terms of the British plantation system, or is it more typical of Burbese because, interestingly, because of the immediate legal system that the Dutch had in place from the late 1700s onwards and which the British inherited? Uh, overall, I think it's typical. I think what amelioration does is it shines a bright spotlight on dynamics that um, are harder to see earlier and in other places. Now, I mean, there's a bit of a chicken and the egg question, right? Having a legal official that you can go to and air grievances, um, presumably, and planners said this, you know, actually, uh, you know, increase the amount of, you know, rebelliousness and resistance they saw in their plantations. Um, but there's plenty of evidence from, from kind of non-fiscals and protectors records um, and much earlier that you have plenty of day-to-day um, -day labor negotiation, labor struggles um, that sometimes spill over into violence. And so I, yeah, my general sense is that this is not something limited to the area of immigration, um, Guyana and other colonies where you have that kind of apparatus. Great. Gregory has come back to say, um, the division is interested of responsibilities between responsibilities between what over, overseers are meant to do and what drivers are meant to do. Hmm. So how many drivers were there per plantation? I'm sure that probably varied, but that's what the question is. And was it clear which workers a particular driver was in charge of? Yeah, all great questions. Um, overseers did not spend the majority, of the clearest way for me to ex explain this on a, a large plantation, Essendon, of 200 people. You have two overseers, you have one resident manager, um, and we have three or four drivers. Now we only get uh, a register of people on the estate every three years, and so it's hard in some ways to get a, a perfect number for that. Um, the number of enslaved people, oh, I'm sorry, overseers, to so the first part of your question, the overseers are not spending most of their day in the field with other enslaved people. They, as in this example, they come out kind of mid-morning to check and see what's going on. Um, and they're kind of the middlemen between the plantation manager and the drivers themselves. Um, drivers are generally supervising an individual gang. So that could be as small as eight, 10 people. That can be as large as 30 or 40 people in a particular gang. Those can shift, so it's not like if you're a driver or you're a field laborer, you're you know kind of um, stuck working under that driver for months uh, at a time. Um, the size of gangs and the particular tasks uh, really dictated how many people would be doing what any given day. So it changes during um, a sugar plantations example when people are um, digging holes uh, for planting canes versus when they're harvesting, um, when the when the mill is going, and so all of that really varies. Um, that's part of the kind of complex management of these these plantations of these businesses. 
Um, your normal ratio of kind of driver to enslave people is something like one to 20 or one to 25. It's really hard to know, but we've got a large number of drivers. So if you pick a plantation with you know, a few hundred people, you're going to have a head driver, a second driver, a third driver, and then sometimes very specialized one, a um, Logie driver. Logie is where the coffee is uh, dried and stored in Guyana. It's a, a Dutch Creole term. So you have a Logie driver. So there's kind of an um, in, individual enslaved man who's responsible for supervising labor um, throughout different facets of a plantation. Great. Leland wants to know, have you come across any, example, any, any examples of rebellious slaves who were made drivers to pacify them. <laughs> That's interesting. No, I haven't. Um, uh, drivers, I mean, the opposite of what you're asking about, just, just since you mentioned rebellion, um, drivers who participate in rebellions, um, who lead rebellions, the most uh, famous is the so-called Busso's War, uh, 1816 Barbados Rebellion, identified as a ranger, which is essentially another term for a driver. But um, no, I haven't seen anyone who's... Uh, Yes, appointed to a driver. I mean, really, I think that would be, frankly, disqualifying, right? People who are considered rebellious or even problematic for planners or managers are not the type of people who get appointed to this position. Um, and when drivers themselves show any, you know, when, when they fail to even crush resistance, when a driver, you know, quote unquote, lets somebody else escape a plantation, the driver is blamed for that. I mean, that can be disqualifying and get you demoted. So um, yeah, I haven't seen that. Of course. Of course. I mean, this isn't this is a question for me in relation to what you're saying. But of course, we've heard about broken drivers. And of course, we don't know the consequences for them, but we can imagine, I suppose. Well, you, you will soon, hopefully. Well, soonish. Yeah, you'll have a chapter all about that. But um, I mean, the consequences for drivers, uh, drivers react, not surprisingly, often defiantly. In some cases, years or decades later, the drivers are still mounting kind of individual acts of insubordination of resistance on the plantation. The new drivers complain that, hey, these people don't listen to me. They listen to this old driver. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. uh, sometimes drivers commit suicide. I have a really uh -huh. heartbreaking case where a driver drowns himself and the driver's wife is interrogated. And she says his heart was turned, which is her way of saying he couldn't go back to being a, I mean, she even, you know, she's using the planner's language here and says, oh, he couldn't go back to being, quote, an ordinary Negro after having so long been a driver. And so there's a sense of the, not just the kind of material investment drivers have in a position letting them survive, but being promoted to this position of status and authority and respect for, in some cases, decades, and then get, having to go back into field labor, which is not just a you know death sentence, it's also humiliating. Um, yeah. And drivers go to legal authorities and talk about that. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, for me, the other dad you asked, so sorry, I'm, I know I'm talking too long here, but, uh, I'm fascinated when drivers' wives lead um, strikes and other acts of resistance when their husbands are demoted. Uh -huh. And so there are cases where, and kind of the social implications where it's not just the driver, but other people are invested in a particular driver's authority and position, and they respond by organizing their own resistance um, to try to get a driver reinstated. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. We can go on with that, but we have questions for you. Stuart Hughes. Well, and this is also, well, they're all interesting. What was the dynamic in the slave society for, slash living quarters? What was the dynamic in the slave society living quarters between drivers and enslaved people? Were they separated for security reasons or was there a tacit acceptance of their role by the enslaved? Wow, that's a, um, a great and a hard question to answer. The Easiest one to answer is no, they're not separated, physically separated. The drivers are living in households. 
um, they're often important members of slave communities who are recognized, again, not, not just as these disciplinarians, these labor supervisors, but as leaders, because the drivers can negotiate, quote unquote, better conditions for enslaved people. They do that often. Um, drivers have some of the largest families compared to other enslaved men. They're much more likely to be married. They're much more likely to have children. When they do have children, they have more children. Um, and I'm speaking overall in the aggregate here, um, drivers are more likely to have polygamous families, so to have multiple wives. So this, this ties into some earlier conversation we had about um, the African connection to leadership and authority. The, there's a reason I'm calling this third chapter big men, which is a, a term that comes really out of African um, sociology, African uh, historiography, where drivers have a particular position that they can use to um, redistribute resources, scarce resources. And I mean that materially, but I also mean that socially and politically to other enslaved people. Um, and so drivers are often, um, they're, not, they're not only feared by their enslaved people, and sometimes they certainly are, but they're often looked up to and respected. And there is, I mean, the last part of your question, there is a sense that, okay, a lot of what a driver has to do, and this comes up spe specifically when drivers are inflicting violent punishments on the orders of managers, that, hey, drivers are forced into this role, that the driver can't just say no. When the driver's ordered to flog someone, I mean, the driver could, but he has as much choice as an enslaved person who's ordered to boil sugar to say, no, I'm not gonna do that. So enslaved people do make a distinction between kind of what the driver does that he has to do and when they think a driver, and they use this word, as kind of abusing his position, abusing his authority. So, so great question, and, and, and challenging you know, those social dynamics kind of outside of labor, but they're, they're absolutely key. And this is a difference between I should say, when I say, oh, drivers are like foremen, well, in the factory, plantations like a factory, sure, but no, it's a residential labor camp. Everybody lives there. Mm -hmm. No one clocks out at the end of the day. Driver doesn't go home. You don't, you know, leave the workplace. <laughs> Your home is also the workplace. Everybody is, is trapped in this plantation um, with really important implications for drivers, for other enslaved people. Yeah. So John Cowley, uh, normally attending in person, but here he is online, uh, has a comment, which is, uh, kings, talking about the kings that you talked about before, and other officials of bands involved in the 1805 riot in Trinidad, talking about Trinidad, were also leaders of dancing societies and precursors, he says, interestingly, of carnival bands, which is a kind of interesting comment. And this is one of John's specialties. Um, that's a comment, I guess, you're not Great. really. Yeah, cool. I, I've learned a lot more. You know, I've, um, I've looked at a driver's involvement in a rebellion in Tobago in, and I, I could be wrong, I think 1806. Um, uh, but there's a little bit of work done on driver, some drivers who were involved in a rebellion in, in Tobago. And so I'd love to learn more about, um, you know, kings and dancing societies in Trinidad and these connections. Thank okay. you. Here's a question from K uh, Craig Cochran. Uh, can Randy talk more about the caste system among non-white people of the time? and whether drivers were likely to have other characteristics associated with the middle caste, like being mixed race, uh, more formally educated, more thoroughly creolized. And then he says, ah, was, was, was being a driver seen as a stepping stone to emancipation? Does he mean manumission or emancipation, but anyway? Yeah, um, I mean, on the last part of that, drivers are not more likely as far as I've been able to tell, to become, to get manumitted, um, to get formal legal freedom than other enslaved people. Um, so it doesn't seem to be any sort of kind of escape hatch or stepping stone, however you might want to think of it. Um, drivers are, are not generally um, what you might think of light-skinned brown or, or mixed race. Or, um, 
they are more or less equally African and Creole. And of course, this depends a lot on when you're talking about is there an African majority in a colony. So this really does vary over, over time. Um, certainly in a place like Barbados in the 19th century, it's a Creole, Creole majority. You're finding many Creole drivers in Guyana. It's more or less evenly split between African and Creole. Um, yeah, I think, I think that more or less answers the, I mean, they, they get a marginally better life. And I, I mean, with all the caveats that those terms imply, while they're still enslaved. So this is not, and, and they're still on the plantation. It's a physically dangerous job. So the advantages of kind of being a driver are, um, you're not doing the most physically backbreaking labor, right? Manuring canes, for example, or digging cane holes. Um, you do get better food, clothing, and in greater quantities, you have more secure housing, you get the political and social authority <laughs> that comes with this. Um, but that's really it. You don't, generally get much of an advantage when it turns when it, when it comes to working your way out of slavery you um you know i would, I would say with cohortacion or self-purchase in cuba and other societies where this is more common that that might vary but in the, the british west indies um i haven't seen this position really leading towards manumission uh or you know by planter or by self-purchase in any any real way that's interesting in a way isn't it because they would have been presumably paid in certain ways they might have received money there might have been those possibilities if they existed. So that does create that possibility, perhaps. It, it does. And, and it's possible that it's happening and it's just something that's incredibly hard to, to track um, where you got to identify individual people and see now, I mean, the, the little yeah. bit of work I've done on menu missions and, and self-purchase in Guyana is not, drivers aren't showing up. Um, now, I think part of the answer though, Gad, maybe if you're a planter and you've got a driver who's been a successful driver for 10, 12, 15 years and you need to agree, right? The laws change over, over time and place, but if you have to agree to self-purchase or manumit somebody, that's the least likely you want to manumit. You value that driver. You want to keep that person employed. Uh -huh. That's good. Uh, are, I think we're coming to the end of our session. Um, uh, although here's some other last minute questions. Uh, there are several people who thank you very much for the interesting discussion. Um, Miranda has come back and said, uh, interestingly, when and how did drivers first emerge in 17th century Barbados? I've been trying to figure out the origin of drivers themselves, of enslaved men being put in this position for a long time. And so um, I've been spending a lot of time reading the, uh, the histories of the sugar in Barbados um, and in Brazil and going back to the Atlantic Islands. I can't find drivers being used in a large way in Bahia and Pernambuco. I could be wrong about that, but the Brazilian historians of slavery um, who keep emphasizing that the records are, and of course Brazil is a, in some ways a precursor of what happens in Barbados, um, are not seeing that in their records and they're telling me the records are, are not great, but they're not seeing that. You do have some evidence that African men are being used in supervisory roles in the boiling house and sugar boiling itself. And so that may translate into the use of drivers. Um, but that is frankly still a puzzle. Some of the earliest records we have, so I'm thinking you know, Dra uh, Henry Drax's instructions and Drax Hall and Barbados, many of you will be familiar with, um, is referring to gang labor. And when we think of gangs now, we're, we're starting to think in terms of drivers. And so that's, uh, there's a, I wish I had a better answer for you. And, and frankly, that's um, one of my research questions and puzzles I'm still trying to work on. It does seem that drivers are being used by the mid 17th century, enslaved men as drivers in Barbados, and that um, as with so much else, other colonies end up, you know, copying more or less what they see in Barbados. Um, Interesting. Uh, David Alston has come back with a comment. I think the kings 
and governors, kings and quote, governors in Berbice were also ensuring that funerals were conducted appropriately with feasting. There were other officials, including slave fiscals to settle disputes between enslaved people. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Fascinating, yeah, yeah. No, David, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking, hopefully. That's really interesting stuff. Great. Well, if the, I think you've, we've, we've uh, certainly pushed you to the limit um, uh, and very grateful to you for having done so. Um, I think it, uh, I'm left with, the, with thanking you very much for uh, a session. And of course, always very good to see you.